Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode we meet Michael Dudok DeWitt, director of The Red Turtle. Hello one and all. Lovely to be back. It's been a little while since our uh, episode 70 podcast retrospective. We hope you've been well. I'm Ben Mitchell, joined by Steve Henderson. That's me. Hello, Ben. How are you? It, it is indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I forget how we do I, these things. Uh, I'm okay. I'm exhausted. Hmm. I haven't slept very well the last couple of nights for some reason. So my brain's a bit frazzled. Uh, there's a good chance I won't make a lot of sense this episode. Could make things interesting, or it could sound exactly the same as it always does. We'll see. It sounds to me like you've got podcast news withdrawal syndrome, Ben. Oh yes, let's uh, <laughs> let's crack on, and I can recover. How are you doing? I'm all right. Yeah, uh, busy, busy, busy as ever. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's cracking on with stuff. The Manchester Animation Festival proceedings have begun. With uh, opened up for call for entries and uh, for the Industry Excellence Award, the Film Awards. We're taking in VR shorts now. Uh, and so we're preparing for, for math come November. So, yeah, up to me necking it, as they say up here. And where can people go to submit their films? <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Ben. Uh, <laughs> and go to manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. There you go. So the first port of call, if you've got a new film uh, on the go. And uh, until when uh, do they need to get it in by? They have got until the 28th of July, 2017. There you go. Press release complete. <laughs> That's good. I have a new film myself on the boil that uh, I'd hoped would be done by the end of this month, and that is not going to happen. Similarly entrenched in the the world of busyness, and uh, all of my my main plans have just kind of fallen off this month. They're kind of out the window, so I I can't finish my film. But hopefully by uh, the math deadline, I will uh, I will have it done. So there you go. Good stuff. Uh, and if it doesn't suck, maybe it'll actually uh, be uh, be out in the world by the end of the year at festivals and such. So, fingers crossed. We'll see. You've got another film out, though, at the moment, haven't you, Ben? Online, people can watch. Oh, yes. If we're, pl- if we're plugging each other, this is what this podcast <laughs> has become, isn't it? It's just become just me and you plugging a shit. Well, I don't, if no one else is going to put out, you know, get stuff for us to plug. Why don't we just do, do each other? <laughs> uh, yes, my film, Clem and Throw, that for what seems like forever I've been plugging festival appearances and whatnot at the end of podcasts, is now online. Although not completely done with festivals, so there might be a bit more plugging down the line. Um, yeah, I put it out a couple of weeks ago, and um, I it was interesting because I never really knew what was going to happen. It always felt like a festival film to me, mm. rather than an online um, experience, because you know, the online viewing habits of people aren't necessarily synonymous with patience. And uh, it's a film where you kind of have to be patient for at least a minute Mm. uh, before it actually kind of, you know, something rewarding happens, I guess. And um, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's actually done now. Um, It's line drawn under it, you know, and I think especially given how online content really kind of has to grab you at the start, uh, in this film, like I said, doesn't really do that. I've been surprised at how positive some of the response has been. Mm-hmm. 
from like online audiences and stuff, like uh, Shot of the Week and some nice Vimeo people have been commenting. Uh, some people on the internet, not a huge fan. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if you've seen any of the. Um, uh, well, I was directed toward a website called Gizmodo, right? And uh, I guess the average Gizmodo viewer isn't a big fan of me and my nonsense, you know. So you have, you know, the people on on Vimeo like you know, LOL, awesome, good job, nice ending, tremendous. I'm just you know basking in my own narcissism right now. But then to bring me back down to earth, here's Gizmodo, and I think this probably represents the real face of the internet. Um, Gizmodo owes me four minutes. Wow. Uh, this is dumb. Don't watch it. <laughs> and my personal favorite, that sucked. Wow. <laughs> the confusing thing about the Gizmodo article is that the headline is a, a wacky animated tale about a sarcastic ghost, which it isn't really. <laughs> a, there is a ghost in it, but the ghost isn't sarcastic. It only says one thing, and it's quite sincere. It's like the polar opposite of sarcastic. Uh, but it's, but a lot, the commenters are, like, annoyed at that as well. And, like, I'm kind of getting the flack for not having a sarcastic enough ghost. I didn't write the fucking headline. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, so so on one hand, uh, some positivity about Clean and Throw, and then on the other, maybe it's not for everyone. Um, but uh, I think it was an important thing for me to do because I think independent filmmaking by its own nature needs to be kind of an adaptable process. And that's one of the main things that the book is about is just kind of how wide the gamut of an animated film's production values can be while still technically being within the parameters of what independent animation is. Mm. Um, And so if you listen back to the first independent animation podcast where I read the intro, uh, or even better, you can buy the book and read it yourself uh, and you have to listen to my voice. Uh, But there's a kind of aggregated definition of what independent animation is from a bunch of different people who contribute to the book. Because, you know, people's interpretations will change. So I would safely say that Clemen Throw is on the absolute lowest end of the production spectrum. I think that's fair. (laughs) You know, it was made in two weeks um, for absolutely no budget whatsoever. Uh, you've seen it. It's not exactly heavy on full animation. It's um, yeah, but it's it, it, that's it, it doesn't try and oh, let me try English. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't try to hide any of that. No, um, it's it's yeah, it's kind of unabashedly a minimal thing. Mm. And I think that my my big problem I had with the film that I had tried to do for a while before, and then i've had to kind of shelf for a while is i just kept overthinking it and overthinking it and uh it was a bit like that scene in father ted where he sees a dent in his car (laughs) so he tries to hammer up the dent and then he just ends up like by increments completely wrecking the car that was sort of what happened with my last film so this was just like i got this dumb idea and i just animated it before the the more earnest voices in my head could say this is probably kind of a stupid idea but i'd made it by that point and then you know it had it, it had this strange way of working in festivals mm. like you could feel that the, the mood in the room would change um and that was kind of a nice thing uh but the main thing was like I, i'm halfway through writing the book and i'm like wait i haven't actually made a film like to the end in nearly five years um and i'm writing this book about how you know technically anyone can do this i should probably at least get another film out mm. um so that was that was another reason to do it 
Anyway, it's online. Maybe it'll be uh, it'll be a laugh if you want to check it out. Bear Grylls doesn't go out and do all that, you know, drinking his own wee and stuff. He just writes about it. Oh, there you go. See, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe if there's some way of combining the two experiences, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, there's probably another podcast in that. <laughs> maybe. Um, <laughs> remember what I was saying at the beginning about not making a lot of sense in this episode? <laughs> it's begun. <laughs> Anyway, thank you for the uh, plug reciprocation. And uh, I, I hope to see you at the Manchester Animation Festival with Cleman Throw 2 under my arm. <laughs> this time with more sarcasm. <laughs> uh, there is actually going to be a ghost in the new one. And oh, this ghost isn't sarcastic either. One of the other characters is kind of sarcastic. Maybe I can swap their dialogue. I mean, it's not too late to win over Gizmodo. Change the opacity on the characters. Speaking of which... Um, uh, no, not speaking of which at all. What the f*** am I doing? Uh, <laughs> on a completely different subject altogether. <laughs> Firing on all cylinders today. Perfect segue. <laughs> Seamless. Uh, in the Well, I guess because of, of it being an animated film, um, finally, a bit of good news, the uh, new uh, Cartoon Saloon feature has a nice chunk of footage out. Oh, the, uh, the trailer is out. A gorgeous chunk of footage as well. Mm-hmm. One, of, uh, one of the nicest chunks I've, I've seen in a good long while. I mm. say. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to this one. Now, I, I'm having pretty much no time whatsoever other than the time it takes to watch the trailer. I don't know a whole bunch about the whens and wheres of any sort of like plan of action for distribution or release. Um, do you have anything like that to hand? I hear that it's going to be released around autumn time. There's no confirmed release date as of yet uh, for the breadwinner uh, in the UK. Tremendous. Yeah. Oh, yes, check out uh, the trailer for the breadwinner. Um, it's uh, it's up on the old Squiggly website. Mm, just very interesting stuff in the in the actual trailer. I mean, I thought we were going to get a straightforward tale done in this gorgeous cartoon saloon style, uh, which. Uh, director uh, Nora Toomey has put together in a absolutely wonderful way. If you look on the on their Facebook group or on their Twitter, they put uh, making ofs, you know, the, the stages of production from storyboard right the way through to final animation with every uh, stage uh, represented. There's nice little gifts or nice little films that they put up there. Uh, so those interested in the process uh, can go and check those out. But when they release the trailer, there's all this gorgeous cutout animation as well which looks really really sweet as well adds an extra Mm. layer an extra level to this film uh which uh, was already you know a compelling story and uh something that looked absolutely gorgeous so yeah i'm all on board with this one yeah no it's a nice um and maybe adna because i i remember a lot of the the general consensus i think from the participants of uh the prophet Mm -hmm. um one of whom was cartoon saloon um, was that it was such a great anthology feature as far as each individual segment. Um, I think there was more reasoned criticism against that through line, that main story. Mm-hmm. Um, but the individual like animated poetry segments were really, really wonderful. And they were, it was a great selection of animation styles. And I think when you can get an effective juxtaposition of styles, that's a, a really wonderful thing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, so it's nice that there's there's you know, some element of that um, in this as well. Um, there was a video game I played a while ago. 
be quite old now, but it was one of those Alice in Wonderland games. And there was this point in the trailer where you, you could see some of the levels were done in like a cutout style. Mm-hmm. Like it goes from like being a kind of 3D um, game to like a more traditional kind of 2D platformer, but with like 2D animation cutout style. I'm like, oh, what a great idea. But the levels were so annoying. <laughs> like they were just really hard to get through. So it completely soured me on the whole thing. This will renew, I'm sure, my enthusiasm for the the cutout animation aesthetic. Good. Justice. Justice has been done. Hopefully one day Cuphead will finally come out. I've been drawing over the footage of that for ages. Oh, it's absolutely gorgeous, doesn't it? For those that don't Uh, know uh, what Cuphead is, how would you describe it, Ben? Like a 1930s animation retro game? Is that right? Yeah, it's like a a rubber hose-era like animation nightmare i guess <laughs> like um but it's it yeah this sort of ridiculous attention to detail when it comes to the character designs and the character behaviors and mm. how animation was kind of finding its way back then so there was a lot there was very specific kind of behaviors that were i think more determined by geometry and like you know getting a collection of you know facial features and limbs to move and uh, correspond with one another. And the cause and effect wasn't nearly as refined as you would see in, you know, later Disney films and things like that. Everything was, you know, very rubber hosey, hence the term. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that that determined an awful lot of the aesthetic of it. And I think I mentioned actually a, a, a while ago now, it was a book I was reading that the theory was that all those rubber hose animations were just a celebration of minstrel culture. Right. Which, uh, because it's all, you know, black characters with white gloves, essentially. And I kind of feel like mm, <laughs> there was something too, in the sense of, I think there was a, an element of musical theater, perhaps, uh, was uh, incorporated into those old shorts, because, you know, most of them were set to music. Um but I think that maybe the, this person was looking at a cloud and seeing, you know, his own thing. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, there's obviously there's also the restrictions of of the fact that you've only, you can only work in black and white. Yeah, and that when you have a completely white character with a black outline, if the if the aspect if the aspect ratio is wrong, or the character will f- fade or blur away into nothing. It's uh, you know, there's a there's a lot more to it than just simply let's be old timey racists. Mm-hmm. Well, this this game now says mid-2007, but it said, like, 2006 at the beginning of two, uh, 2016. That would have been quite a feat if they'd been able I to get it into... I was going to say, 10 years. <laughs> um, the, it's they, like the UK deficit pain, isn't it? It keeps <laughs> extending. <laughs> uh, but I appreciate that, of course, it's not easy to put a game together. Um, uh, a game that I have some sort of peripheral involvement in uh, has been delayed a little bit. Um, it's hard, so hmm. we. I'm sure it'll be worth the extra wait. Absolutely. Uh, as will the game that uh, that I'm going to be involved in, I'm sure, with my dulcet tones ringing through it. Eh. <laughs> Apparently, well, I attempt a, a West Midlands accent at one point. I have a feeling it's not going to make the final cut of the game. <laughs> you can sort of tell, like, the room wasn't feeling it. <laughs> Go on, give us, give us a, a flavour, Ben. Oh, Mr. Fiddle, there's something dark and sinister on the bar. <laughs> you sound like you sound like Nanny off Count Duckula if you if you octaves higher. Maybe I can get in on the new Count Duckula. Yeah. Sometimes you swing and you miss. But <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah. Anyhow. Say, talking about feature films, The Red Turtle's finally coming out in the UK. Yes. It's finally, after... I mean, we've been singing the praises of this film, both on this podcast and online, and we've been very kind of trying to keep back what we want to say about this until it got a UK release, which is fortunately uh, this week, if you're listening to the podcast as it comes out. Finally, it's out. I mean, we saw it in Annecy last year when it when it got its premiere a, a year ago, Ben. It screened at festivals throughout the UK, so I'm sure many of our uh, animation fan listeners will have uh, seeked it out and seen it and enjoyed it uh, and have their own thoughts on it. But uh, it's finally here, Ben. The Red Turtle by Michael Dudot DeWitt. Mm-hmm. Who also, of course, directed uh, Father and Daughter mm-hmm. and uh, Monk and the Fish. There was, I think, initially... And I remember when we did talk about it at Annecy, and that'll be up on our Facebook page if one goes there and digs through the uh, the video archives, um, that uh, there was a bit of concern about the pairing of Michael Dudok DeWitt and such an established brand as Studio Ghibli. Hmm. Ghibli. Ghibli. It's, it's pronounced giblets. Ah, Studio Giblets. Um, and what a relief it was when uh, it turned out to be a complementary pairing. Mm. Um, you know, you have this elegance and beauty to the story and this atmosphere to it that has certain tinges of the Studio Giblets brand, mm-hmm. but its overall art and direction and its storytelling is its own thing mm-hmm. uh, and really a very watchable thing indeed. Um, you know, no dialogue, lovely, lovely music and lovely sound, lovely visual ideas, a very sort of haunting uh, recurring sequence. Well, I think it only recurs twice, but it's a sequence that involves, um, uh, I think, a string quartet quite early on in the film. But, uh, and yeah, just the whole, I mean, it's, you know, I'm sure at the time there would have been um, comparisons made to cast away in the sense that, you know, uh, this, this poor prick's stranded and that initial thing before he kind of like gets used to his new life. Um, of trying to, you know, make it, you know, trying to adapt to that environment and that kind of thing. But then, of course, it takes a much more uh, mythical turn. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, maybe, uh, maybe you could describe the plot in a in a non-spoilery way for people who might not have uh, come across it yet. That's a big ask. Uh, there, uh, well, as I say in the interview to to, to Michael, and he does agree. Uh, our guest in this month's podcast, uh, for those who don't know, Michael Dutotway, obviously. Um, as he says in the interview, it's almost three stories in one. You have the initial tale of a man's survival on a on a stranded on this desert island, uh, and he's encountered with this turtle. Then the story becomes a coming of age story of a young man, uh, and there's also a story of magic and uh, mystery, and there's a lot of ambiguity in this film as well. It all comes together to create something which. On paper, the story of a man on a desert island as a 2D animation sounds really almost boring. But because there's all these different elements to it, and because Mm. there's always something going on, whether it be survival, whether it be about growing up, whether it be magic, whether it be intrigue, whether it be dream sequences, because there's quite a few dream sequences and fantasy sequences, there's always something going on in this film. I don't want to give a whole soup to nuts description of what happens but i implore anyone who you know if you do love 2d animation go see this film mm. 
the uh it's an interesting thing about like the overall kind of critical response i think has been pretty positive like mm-hmm. i would say well over kind of nine out of ten critics think it's it's a wonderful film i haven't heard that many compelling like criticisms leveled against it there have been a couple that have have come up but the one that was absolutely baffling and this was at annecy that week and it was john Kay, who was kind of like you know pottering about the festival that year um and he was like yeah this is a good film i guess the animation's okay but you could have just made it as a live action film like how the what are you talking about? <laughs> like, so I and I, I really want to, you know, stick with that whole notion of John Kay, you know, coming through to the other side of whatever this thing is he's going through. But like, when you say stuff like that, you know, yeah. Um. Anyway, I, uh, I, I don't think it would be a very uh, uh, an as effective film as a live action film, personally. If I may, if I may deign to disagree with that. Uh, with that assessment, but um, I just as a as a two D animator myself, and as someone who enjoys watching the process of the animation, I thought it was just you know I could have just easily watched it to study it. Um, mm. uh, just the sort of moments of conveying that kind of impotent rage the guy has, where he's just like screaming into nothing, yeah. you know. But from that kind of certain like amount of distance behind, like that getting that command of his body language, that sheer frustration. Um, then when he you know he he starts encountering the actual turtle and um, starts to get into some scrapes with it. Yeah, <laughs> and I kind of want to start like talking about more stuff that happens because you know, but I don't, I won't. Um, and I remember going back to our thing of uh, what you know the the insight of the internet community and the comments <laughs> therein um the very first youtube comment i'm sure on the trailer was so he he, he had sex with a turtle unfortunate isn't it the internet as we've already <laughs> discussed ben <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely i wonder what gizmodo would make of the red turtle <laughs> the turtle isn't sarcastic enough <laughs> okay <laughs> do you do you have uh, do you have Favourite Michael Dudot DeWitt films before The Red Turtle of his shorts? Uh, I think the favourite was always Father and Daughter. Not to, mm. you know, not to go with the hit single, you know. Um, but uh, I, uh, yeah, I like that one. I thought that was very, uh, very nicely done. Um, mm. I think we have a piece up on that. I think it was Father and Daughter rather than Monk and the Fish. I think Steve Cav wrote uh, a little summary of his appreciation for that film. Uh if you haven't seen Father and Daughter, why don't you go and check that out and give it a watch? It's, eh? it's one of those films that got me into, you know, the real world of animation. Mm. You know, the, the, the kind of stuff we... I think I might have told this story on the podcast before, but, you know, tough. I'm telling it again. Uh, it was, you know, the first Bradford Animation Festival I went to, and it was Father and Daughter and Susie Templeton's dog in the same screening, I think. And when you go into an animation screening at an animation festival thinking you know everything about animation because you've watched a lot of episodes of The Simpsons hmm. and you see you see stuff like that and you hear people crying around you and you know people visibly moved by what can be accomplished in animation, you realize that you know you're, you're in the you're witnessing something incredibly special mm-hmm. uh, and I think that that carries forward in all of Michael's films. You know, even the sort of, whether it be comedy, uh, whether it be something abstract, uh, or whether it be a real drama, 
like Father and Daughter or like The Red Turtle, which has got something for everyone in it. You know, I think I laughed out loud a couple of times in it as well mm. as uh, my heart was in my mouth at certain times and uh, I was in awe of the spectacle of the thing as well. You really, feel, you really feel the sun on your face at some moments. I don't know if you get this, Ben. If I were to watch, say, Robert Zemeckis' Castaway, I'm watching a film about a man on a desert island, but when I watch The Red Turtle, because of the colours that, that Michael uses and because of the way that it's staged and the sound and because it's, it's tailored, it's really, you know, really done well, I could feel the sun on my face. It was, you know, it's extraordinary. felt like I was there when you see it on the big screen. I think it sort of prompts a kind of synesthetic response. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. I think I, I think I know what you mean. I think definitely um, perhaps more of a kind of emotional thing rather than a physical sort of sensation thing for me, but I, I have definitely been able... A, a film that can engage you on an emotional level, you will kind of find yourself immersed in it a lot more. Mm. And yeah, maybe sort of feel that kind of like emotional frustration of being caught in the rain or that uh, certain relaxation of being out in the sun um, or, you know, under a certain element of durance. Actually, I was watching um, a TV show last night that that was very well done um, where you feel kind of humiliation for a character. Made in Chelsea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they've really kind of raised the bar, you know. Um no, this was uh, the the Fargo series, which mm. um, I think I mentioned the last time I saw you because there's a. I don't think it's aired in England yet. Maybe in a couple of weeks, but there's one episode that really oddly kind of rips off Don Hertzfeld's World of Tomorrow, which I was a bit like, mm. like at least you know get Don Hertzfeld to do it. Uh, apparently, it was the the guys who do Archer they had to do it instead. Um, but uh, that aside. Um, it's a mostly live action show, although the guy who is one of the main the main villain of this season is the guy from Anomalisa, um, who was also in James and the Giant Peach. There's enough of an animation connection. <laughs> uh, anyway, there's a scene where he's kind of like you know humiliating one of the uh, one of the other characters in this very kind of um, asserting himself way that this person will never this person will never be able to you know be respected by this guy after this display. And that was a very well-filmed and well-scored and well, you know, um, well-timed series of things that happens. And, uh, you know, I think that with live-action filmmaking, maybe it's an easier thing to pull off because, you know, you you can... You get multiple stabs at getting that exact performance out of your actors. Hmm. Animation, I think, when you, you get that effective, you know, synesthesia, that effective, like, you know level of immersiveness i think that maybe there's a lot more challenge to that or maybe a lot more intuitive uh, ability at annecy when they did the premiere they also were screening the documentary about it yeah which i kind of question whether they maybe could have waited until this year when more people had seen the film because a lot of people went to the documentary screening without getting to see the premiere the premiere was a pretty um closed off event like it would think did they screen it once or twice? Uh, I think it was only screened. It was screened twice, but in two different cinemas at the same time. So effectively right. one screening. And I think that some people, it was like, it's a, a matter of, you know, you've really got to act fast with Annecy, even if you have like, you know, accreditation that will get you there. You've got to nab a ticket pretty quickly. Uh, so there was a lot of like 
buzz around the film, but an awful lot of people there who didn't actually get to see it, unfortunately. So they went to this documentary screening, which I thought was fantastic. I thought it was a, a, could have been maybe a little bit more extensive, but you know, I, I thought it was very enjoyable. But without the context of the actual film, I think some people were a little underwhelmed by what they were seeing of the process of it. Which was a shame because you know it, it's when you have that memory of how that scene in particular comes across in the final film, uh, and then you see that part of the process, it's quite fascinating. Um, so, so yeah, watch the film first. Yeah, watch it in the cinemas. Don't wait for it to come out on DVD. I mean, I think it's probably going to be getting something of a limited release. So if you if there's an independent cinema uh, near you. Uh, I don't know which which cinemas will be playing it. I presume the Watershed will be playing it down in Bristol, Ben. Uh, Home in Manchester will probably be playing it. Um, Hyde Park Picture House in Leeds. Uh, have a you know picture house up in Edinburgh. Have a proper look and find it in a you know proper cinema, and you know watch it properly. Yeah, the picture houses and the uh, Europas, I think, would be a good a good bet. I just checked, and it will be at Watershed for a little while from Friday, the mm. 26th. Uh, super. Well, why don't we hear from Michael Dudok DeWitt? Michael Dudok DeWitt, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Uh, here to talk about uh, your latest feature film, the uh, your first feature film, rather, yeah. The Red Turtle, thank you. Uh, which is getting a UK uh, release after what, what feels like a very long wait. <laughs> We're finally getting it in the UK, which is superb. <laughs> thank you. Um, you're known for your uh, unique look in your films, but you've also tackled abstract work, you've tackled comedy uh, with Monk and the Fish and Tom Sweep, uh, and you've tackled drama uh, with Father and Daughter. Do your short films start with a sketch, uh, something visual, or do they start with an idea and some writing? They start, uh, so far, they all started with an idea. And. But I see where your question comes from because immediately I need to make a sketch, otherwise the idea doesn't exist. I need the visual, the visual um, proof in front of me, and already with the first sketch, I notice the idea already evolves into a direction. Um, but thinking back, all of them, and, and certainly the, the feature film, they all started with a very specific idea. Excellent. Uh, with uh, father and daughter, for instance, where did that idea? come from what was the catalyst of that story yes i remember the, the catalyst of father and daughter very well because i actually conceived of the idea the whole idea of the film uh while driving alone in my car on the motorway and that i've not often noticed that's a very good time to think about things because you 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 are busy with your hands and in a way with your eyes but you, you have lots of space to think about things, you know. And there's something about mo- the slow movements of the landscape all the time that stimulates you to, to focus on things. And I asked myself, at that point, I asked myself, the, the project I'm working on right now isn't quite working. What, what do I really want to, what do I want to express? What do I want to express more than anything else? And it was just the perfect time to ask a question because the answer came straight away. And I remember because I thought, well, of course. <laughs> and then I asked myself, uh, yeah, but where's the story in that? Um, and that came immediately also. And the third question was, um, but what kind of ambience does it have? What's the setting? And that came immediately also. 
And the answers to the questions were the first question, what do I want to express most, uh, was simply, very simply um, a deep, the deep emotion, the deep feeling of longing. Not longing for your holidays or for, or for a partner or for whatever it is, but a longing so deep that it kind of, it's like present every day of your life. And you may not know what longing is for, in a way that doesn't matter. You know that the longing is there. That I recognized very clearly in myself um, and often in other people too, even if they don't realize it, I can see it. And we translate it into nostalgia or idealism um, or, or other forms of, of um, indirect longing. Um, the answer to my second question, uh, so what what situation would be ideal to express that and came also very quickly a child longing for his or her parent who is absent um, that's archetypal that's very deep um, my parents at, parents at that time were alive and, and I, I saw them regularly so it was not speaking from practical experience but the deep the deep notion of an idealized parent um, I, I, I can identify with that and um, then, so I quickly thought of a, a daughter longing for her father. And the third question was, um, what setting and what situation, what ambience? And again, I thought, there are thoughts of nostalgia, because longing and nostalgia are, are, are the same thing. I thought of, with nostalgia, of the landscapes that I knew as a child, which still exist in, to a degree, uh, which are the big open plains of the Netherlands, where I used to cycle a lot and just be aware of the empty sky above me and the horizon and nothing else. Really captured very well in that film, the, the, the Netherlands. Thank uh, you. I've never been, but I feel like I've been. <laughs> Thank <film>. you. <laughs> um, well, speaking of longing, I suppose that segues nicely into the fact that Studio Ghibli approached you to make your first feature film. Mm. They longed for you. They longed for me. Did they long for me? <laughs> in, the, in well, in the feature film, there's an element of longing. Again, it's not the main theme; it's not the driving force of the story, but it it's present enough to to acknowledge it. It's part of the story because the the premise is a castaway on a desert island. Unless you want to stay on an island because it's it's paradise for you, um, you want you want to leave. You want to go home. You don't belong there. And of course, it's not paradise. It's never, it's never paradise. The holiday brochures call it paradise because they know you can go home after two weeks um, and, and not stay there. But if you're alone and you feel stuck and you, you imagine you will be alone forever on that island and there are parasites and it's, the sky is gray and you go, you, 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 you're, you're going crazy from loneliness, then the longing is immense. Um, I know from not from experience, but from research I've done, and of course we can imagine that. So um, Studio Ghibli contacted me because uh, they they'd seen Father and Daughter, my short film. They'd seen my other films too, and they literally in the letter they they sent me that took me totally by surprise. And they said we've seen Father and Daughter, we like it a lot. Have you thought of making a feature film? And if yes, we would like to produce it. As simple as that. 
they also added uh, we would co-produce it with our distributor in Paris, Wild Ponds. Um, and so I immediately asked, you mean you want me to come to Tokyo? And they said, no, no, you make it in Europe with European artists. Um, propose a story, propose a visual style. No, you you don't have to make it in the style of Studio Ghibli. Just propose something that you think will work. And we took it from there. Excellent. You mentioned uh, in Annecy when you were introducing the film how they uh, they said that your films are very Japanese. How did you respond to that? You know, when when a Japanese person says that, that's a huge compliment because they're they are proud of their culture um, and and understandably so. It's it's a very very fine culture. I, I happen to, to like to like it a lot, um, especially the traditional culture of calligraphy and brush paintings on on paper. Um, a lot. I mean, well before I even knew the stu- that Studio Ghibli existed. Um, so that it may I don't think my art is oriental but there there's an inspiration from the from the far east in, in my work in general the way they use empty space uh, which we do too in the west but they they've taken it further and, and they've made it more conscious um, the way they appreciate very quiet moments like in their haiku poetry just the way the rain falls a bit of mist the silence of this an insect there a frog there etc um, so in general also their appreciation of nature in a very very uh, d- deep way they see nature not as matter as much but more as something that's alive all all over Every everything is alive um, and and I have that too, and again, in my Western way, um, I'm sensitive to nature, but we meet, we can meet there, and it's obvious because people who watch Studio Ghibli films immediately recognize that quality and can resonate with that. Um, so, in a way, I was very sensitive to their comments because they are Japanese culture comments, uh, naturally Japanese co- comments. Um, because they have they have got very high sensitivity at Studio Ghibli, and at the same time, my my aim was to rise above the cultural differences that people don't see the, the Red Turtle as a Japanese pro- pro- project, or for that matter, not as a European project either, but more something more universal. The film is very it's a very complex film. Uh, there, it's almost three films in one. Was it always? an idea for a feature film? Was it an idea that you had before uh, Ghibli approached you? Uh, when did you start with The Red Turtle? I had a seed of an I- a castaway on a desert island uh, story um, 10 years before that already, but it wasn't strong enough. I'd, I'd written a synopsis. It didn't convince me enough um, I showed it only to one professional, but it didn't really convince me, so I left it in the drawer. And when Studio Ghibli contacted me saying, let's let's work together, immediately I thought, hang on, let's let's have a look at that again. And, and basically I rejected it and started from scratch. I had the idea before, but it, I knew it, the premise of a castaway on a on a tropical island, as a tropical island, is not strong enough for a short film, in my, in, for me. Um, because I think the story, the the subject is too wonderful to tell in only a few minutes. It's too big. There are too many aspects. You want to explore the space. You want to show different aspects of the landscape. So that's one. Um, 
Yes, that's it. Sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, th I thought I was going to say something else. But, uh, <laughs> Brilliant. Um, well, talking about space, talking about the, uh, the atmosphere, the fact that the sun's not always shining, it's not paradise. Uh, you really do feel like you are on the island with the castaway, with the unnamed castaway. And one of the particular uh, more potent moments for me in the film, where my heart jumped into my mouth, was when he fell into the cave, uh, the water cave, and he seemed trapped. Uh, and that happened quite early on in, in the film. Uh, and it really, takes, it really takes you out of your comfort zone instantly. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that moment? I'm delighted to hear that took you out of your comfort zone. But what I wanted to tell immediately in the story, that it's not about the danger of magical creatures or magical things happening, that it's a down-to-earth landscape, that he can be very startled by the sound of approaching rain. It can frighten him. And equally, that he, 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 his life is genuinely in danger, f even for small things, just like slipping off a rock and falling into a crevice. And once he is in the crevice, he is stuck there and he is, he, he is panicking because he, he is worried about drowning because he can't get out. Um, that, I thought, is important to tell. And apart from that, it's a cracking good moment of, of suspense. And to be, to be honest, I've, I, that detail about him being stuck in a crevice and then trying to find an exit underwater um, is alive in my experience because as a teenager, I, I did the same. I swam underwater between rocks in order to pass through, through um, in a way, an un underwater crevice um, in a Mediterranean sea. And I did it purely just out of curiosity. Um, and it was totally underwater. You couldn't breathe. And that's one of the most stupid things that I've done in my life because I could easily have been stuck there and drowned really stupidly underwater. People wouldn't have found me in time to rescue rescue me. Um, but there was a thrill. I, I was seeking for a thrill. And obviously um, it, it went well. And when I came out the other side, people were very surprised to see me here arriving at the surface. Where, where are you coming from? <laughs> <laughs> A small, a small detail. Uh, the film was all hand-drawn, the feature film, Red Turtle. The traditional way, um, uh, hand-drawn animation. Actually, we didn't draw on paper. We, draw on, we drew on Cintiqs, but it's, it's virtually the same. A few elements were CG animation. The turtles were all CG animation um, because they are just very hard to, to keep very, as very solid animals when they move slowly underwater. And the uh, CG animation was done by one person, um, Dominique Contois, a, a Belgian animator. He created the turtle and he animated them. In his free time, his main hobby is deep sea uh, diving on, in, in caves, underwater dive. Uh, he's, he swims underwater in caves. Wow. So yeah. perfect film for him then? Perfect film for him, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, I noticed that the film was completed uh, Traditionally, so traditional animation, uh, digital. Uh, how did you find the 2D animation process on a Cintiq? Did you get involved and do any keys or uh, yeah. much of the animation yourself? Yes, I was, I was the oldest animator for, of the crew. So I'd been drawing on paper longer than anyone else. And I think for me, the transition was also the slowest. Um, many um, ex very experienced animators had done the transition almost effortlessly 
um, like within days from paper animation to synthetic animation. And all of them, because I was very um, curious about the experience, and all of them said, I don't want to go back. It's, the synthetic is much better. And they have more control, basically, and the artistic quality doesn't suffer. Um, so me personally, I didn't animate on this film. So I was not pushed to, to totally intuitively familiarize myself with the tool. Um, I didn't have the time. Um, if, if I had to animate, I would have, you know, spent a week or a couple of weeks just animating nonstop on a Cintiq and it would have come. I did some retouching, etc. And the Cintiq I used for other, for other tools like Photoshop to, to retouch the backgrounds. But looking back, I think it was by far the best choice to animate on a Cintiq. Um, economically, uh, we saved time and money, which we could reinvest in a film and artistically also. Uh, did you did you miss uh, doing much animation? I missed, yes, I'm an animator. I'm basically two people. I'm an animator and a background artist. I really like doing backgrounds in all my work. It's like the, the dessert. I animate first and now we're going to have the sweet part. Um, so I'd, I worked a lot on the backgrounds of the film. I retouched them. I didn't do. I didn't make them. I I just made changes here and there. And the animation. I missed the um, the hands-on approach and also that you spend the whole day just animating. Um, it's clean. You're 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 in a momentum. You're almost in a zone or in a, in a trance. When you direct a film, you are very very dissipated. You can't avoid it. In other words. Every five minutes, ten minutes, or every half an hour, you have to change your attention to something else. Um, especially in this case, because I'm I'm both the writer and the director, so a lot of questions came to me. Um, that I found hard for an animator. I'm used to hard work, but I'm not used to to have many different hats on and and to relentlessly answer questions and solve problems. Um, but you know, that's part of. Part, part of the profession, I, I, um, after a while I got used to that. The film uh, is very much in three parts. It's a castaway story, uh, then it's a coming-of-age story, uh, and then there's also a story of uh, magic and growing old. Mm. Um, where did you start with putting these stories together? Yes, it's nicely put. Um, you, you, you're the first one including myself, who, who describes the film as different parts. In a way, it is like that. And was also my challenge to keep the parts connected seamlessly as, as one complete whole. And during the writing, that was challenging um, because it felt, like, um, it felt like changing direction a bit too much, almost shockingly. As you say, there's a magic element, so the film starts very realistically. Everything that happens in the story can happen to you and me anytime. Um, and then we we suddenly enter into a, a more surreal um, part of the story. And initially it was so shocking that my uh, co-writer, at that point I had a co-writer, said, we, that's too shocking, we have to work on that. It will pull the spectator out of the film. Um, so we we introduced it in in slightly more uh, organic way, and and I'm happy with with that. Um, my main the main the main start of the film was what do you do when you're alone on an island? I found that very challenging. I think basically you, you've got your food, you've got your water, you 
you try to leave but you can't I'm I'm spoiling it a bit but it's it's obvious um, what do you do next um, it's it's very interesting um, and then he he um, as you say he has an element of of um, of, of a cycle of life he meets a woman and and there's a family element and there there is relatively little conflict in that it's it's quite it's stylized it's very it's quite harmonious and and it works well but when there's no suspense and no conflict that is the main challenge that i was really worried about um the viewer disconnecting at that moment starting yawning or looking at their mobile phone um, so we really worked on that very intensely all the time to make it sharper um, not faster but sharper and more interesting and that there are twists etc then I would say there's a timeless element in the sense that um, it's not just a nice story with beginning middle end that that definitely I, I hope but it le it leaves it leaves something with you that you I hope uh, it depends on the viewer that it it you, you from watching the film you get a feeling of the eternity of things um, of, or at the same time of the absence of time um, it's it's a feeling more than a rational thing so I've got trouble explaining it in, into words but it's like a very subtle or for life, for the beauty of life, for the beauty of, of the stillness of life. There's an ambiguity about the turtle uh, in the film, I believe, but I think that comes hand in hand with an ecological message as well. Uh, perhaps the man, uh, the unnamed man's uh, footprint on the island and, and his actions and the consequences and his remorse for something that happens in the first mm. act could you talk us through the ambiguity of the relationship between the castaway and the turtle yes it is ambiguous and that was a conscious choice it's open to different interpretations and it doesn't mean that one is the best and the other ones are, are um, the wrong interpretations it depends I would rather say it depends on, on the viewers personal sensitivity um, that both both or all three interpretations work, um, and you know the word ecolog ecological or ecology was not the word I used while writing the film or while we were making the film, and it was only when the film was finished and someone said um, something about the ecological message, and I thought, oh, of course, yes, it's ecological. I didn't even realize that. It's because it's funny. It's just basically respecting nature in all senses, including its destructive side, and and that is ecology, deep respect for nature. Uh, what can I say? The the idea of the relationship between the man and turtle were uh, conceived or written intuitively. It felt it just felt so right when I wrote that. It felt so strong and so right and so deeply familiar in a way that um, I knew that was going to be the theme of the film. But then you, that's not good enough. You you, um, you you let it simmer and you look at it intellectually and you show it to your producers or colleagues and you look at their reaction. You want to make sure that it works as as um, an idea for the film. That's not just your your trip, which which can be wonderful, but that's not good enough. So 
um, the relationship between a man and turtle are conceived intuitively, but basically it reflects many's many civilization in this story and wants to control. And the turtle is obviously pure nature, purely, totally in nature. Not only can she climb on a beach and be at home on a beach, but she belongs also to the ocean. And the ocean is not just like a lovely sea around the island. The ocean is obviously infinity because you're all the time back to the horizon, back to the vast space of the ocean. So the, basically the, the film is about the man, culture, intellect, turtle, deep nature, eternity, infinity. Excellent. Um, is, is there anything that you feel you still need to do with film? And will you continue working in features or short films? Uh, or will you return to illustration? What's next for Michael Dudok? All of that. <laughs> um, making this film was heavy. It, it was really heavy. Uh, just the volume of work. And the you know, hours I worked per week, month after month, year after year. Um, so it could have put me off, but on the contrary, I really enjoyed it in spite of the, the, the exhaustion I often experienced and the inevitable big problems you experience when you're making something so complex, like typically being behind schedule or um, having a person who, uh, like an artist who was not aligned to the main idea and, and there's a conflict between his or her work and, and the main idea, uh, things like that, and, and ego clashes, etc. Um, that I, I expected before starting the film and they happened and it's part of filmmaking. It's, it's the moments of big emotions, but on the whole, it was so nice. It was so exciting to have a group of really close collaborators that I would love to do that again, for just for that reason. But um, if someone said, I've got a good book here, please make a film, we pay you a lovely amount of money, that, that, that wouldn't work for me. I need to be totally, deeply in love with the story, um, enough to spend years of my life and afterwards also to still feel proud of, of the story. So unless I have a story, there's no film, whether it's a long film or a short film. Um, literally right now I'm doing illustration for um, Japanese magazine, which I hugely enjoy because within a day or within two days you have a finished product <laughs> as opposed to years, years and years of work. Um, so there's a part of me uh, who, who loves that as well. Um, what the future will be, I don't know. I would love to make another film. My models are those filmmakers who continue making films in an, at an advanced age, like Takata, with who I worked uh, personally, like Miyazaki, um, and, and like many short filmmakers also. Um, not because they have to financially or, or something, but just because it's a passion, it's their vocation, they just want to keep going as long as possible. Did you develop a relationship with the Studio Ghibli heads um, of the studio, and is that still an ongoing uh, relationship? Yes, our relationship started really, really well, because they expressed a strong... Um, affinity with my work and a love for my work they really said so not not of politeness 
Um, uh, but they kept on saying it over and over again. Takata uses one of my films when he teaches at university, not once, but many times, things like that. Um, so they liked my work. I deeply loved their work. Um, Studio Ghibli films, I've seen them since the beginning of the 90s when they came to Annecy Festival. Um, they hadn't arrived in England yet, but um, th th they came to, to, to France in the early 90s. And um, so we started with a mutual admiration and a desire to work together. So it clicked immediately on that level. Always, we always talked through an interpreter. Yeah, that's a bit of a disadvantage, but she she works permanently at Studio Ghibli. She knows the people uh, personally very well. So she she um, she understood our, when I she understood me when I talked, and she understood them when they talked. And so in that sense, it worked. Um, they were the Japanese were very discreet about their personal life. That's probably part of their culture, and and that's fine. I mean, um, in a way, I was too. They never, apart from one occasion, they never came to my house. Um, the, um, there was plenty of very personal things to talk about with the, with the project, like we would spend days. Takata, Suzuki, and I would spend... Suzuki is the produ main producer. So we would spend days talking about the philosophy, the symbols, the metaphors, the small details, visual details, the landscapes, etc. And th that that can be quite intimate. It really shows your, your, fine, the your finer feelings. Um, I, f I feel we... Yes, of course, I feel we, we'll be friends forever. Will we work together again? We... Honestly, we haven't even talked about that. Um, the film has not been out for a year almost now. Um, I think I want to see what it is to to um, to sit in an audience and watching our film with an audience. I want to have the experience of the finished film. Um, they they're not that young anymore, so if if they want to do another project with me or with another non-Japanese director, I I don't know. To go back to the look of the film, and you talked of the longing and the space and your own design style and what it is you like about it. There are particular moments in the film, uh, for example, where he turns around and berates the crabs, uh, or where there's all that beautiful space which comes directly from uh, from your own short films, uh, and there's the real Michael Dugot do it signature throughout the film. How did you maintain that vision? working with such a big team and working internationally. In fact, you have just described there my biggest worry is that by working with a big team, the, the character of the film would be diluted because every animator has his or her own strong personality and for each, each animator may go into an, another direction and it was my task to, to guide them gently back to, to one common goal. Um, I say gently because you, at the same time you want them to keep their passion in their work. They they are not a factory. They are not obeying orders. They they explore themselves with me and and they they show me things that I wouldn't have thought of and that I keep consequently, etc. Um, so that was challenging. But when I saw that it started working, we were we were a relatively small team. I mean, twelve character animators, twelve special effect animators. Roughly, it changed from month to month. Um, about six or seven background artists. That's quite small for an animated feature. So over over after a few months, I saw very slowly. I saw yes, the film not only keeps its identity, but it's 
getting a new new form because of the input of the people. So there, I, I was I was um, very relieved. Michael Dudowick, thank you very much for talking to Swigley today. Thank you. That was Michael Dudot-DeWitt, director of The Red Turtle, which is out in UK cinemas from the 26th of May. So get yourself down to your local cinema. I'll uh, find The Red Turtle online somewhere. I'm sure you'll find a nice cinema that screens it and uh, take in the full experience. That's it for episode 71 of the Squiggly Animation Podcast. Don't forget Ben's film Clem and Throw is now available to watch online in full. So search Clem and Throw uh, on Vimeo.com or go along to the Squiggly Animation Showcase where it's available there. Clem and Throw is spelled K-L-E-M-E-N-T-H-R-O. Entries for this year's Manchester Animation Festival are now open until the 28th of July 2017. So if you've got a short film, a student film or a commissioned film, you can enter it for free over on the website. Uh, But if you've done a commissioned film or if you were involved in the writing, the storyboarding, the character design or the character animation, you might want to enter our Industry Excellence Awards. Uh, which is open until the same date and is available to enter for free online. The website, again, manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk and the Manchester Animation Festival returns to home in Manchester on the 14th, 15th and 16th of November 2017. And while you're scouring the internet, uh, get yourselves over to Twitter and follow me at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. You can follow Ben at Ben L. Mitchell. And you can follow Squiggly, where the magic happens at at Squiggly. And you can get yourselves over to squiggly.com for all the latest news, reviews, interviews, videos, podcasts just like this, and everything else from the world of animation at squiggly.com. And until the next podcast, happy animating.